turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. While you're doing that, while I would normally say that you disagree with Chip Stewart to your peril, my children informed me I'm contractually obligated to state that they have the world's second best dog. So just want to make that clear because it's on video and this, you know, we want to make, we don't want to, we don't want to have any issues out there. So the world's second best dog is at the Stewart's house. So we are in first Peter. This takes place. Peter's writing in the early sixties AD and he's writing in a time when the world is changing around him because the Roman authorities, the, the, the church starts in Israel, which is in the Roman empire and it spreads throughout modern-day Turkey into modern-day Greece. All this is under Roman control. This is all part of the Roman Empire. Up until now, the Roman Empire has pretty much ignored the Christians. They just thought they were Jews and left them alone. They've come to realize that Christians are not Jews, and they're scared. They don't like Christians because Christians won't worship the gods, and they won't worship the emperor. And so the the authorities feel that worshiping the gods, that's part of civic duty. That's like saying the Pledge of Allegiance or, or taking your hat off or something like that. And so they are upset that the Christians are evangelizing. Christians are bad citizens in their view. And worse, Christians refuse to worship the local gods. When you go to Athens, Athena, the city is named for, is the protector of Athens. You are expected to make an offering at her temple. You are expected to, you know, pour out a little wine, something to show respect to the city's deity. You ever read any Greek myths? You notice what the gods are like? They're like really spoiled but incredibly strong three-year-olds. They get very angry very easily. The authorities are afraid. If you've got Christians going into towns and refusing to show respect and honor to the local deities, like Athena might just wipe out the the Agora one day. She might destroy the Parthenon. It's like, you don't want to worship in my temple? Fine, you can all die. They're legitimately afraid that Christians are going to bring down the wrath of the gods on them because Christians refuse to worship anyone but the God of the scriptures, Jesus, then the God of the Old Testament. And so the world is changing around the church, whereas they used to be ignored. Now suddenly they're being oppressed. They're being persecuted. And Peter is writing to churches in the Roman Empire who are suffering. So I want you to read along with me, 1 Peter chapter 1. We're just going to read a few verses because this is Peter's thesis statement. You know, you remember when you wrote papers in college, you had the introduction, then you had the thesis statement, then you had the body. This is his thesis statement. We finished the introduction. So we're going to read chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So, starts out, first word, therefore. He's drawing on what he said before. So what's he said before? Think back to the last last couple messages. What was in his introduction? He told them about themselves. He told them that they are both chosen, but also exiles. Literally, the word means living away from your people. They are both chosen, and yet at the same time, they have 
they're refugees. They're, they're immigrants. You have all the great things about being chosen by God and you have everything that comes with living as an expatriate, living far from your home and far from your people. He told them that they were sprinkled by the blood of Christ and that doesn't mean anything to us because we don't do this. But in their world, that's how you took something ordinary and made it fit for the God. If you had a, a feast for Apollo, you brought out your plates for the feast. You didn't just use ordinary plates. You had to make them holy. You'd have a sacrifice. You'd kill a cow. You'd dedicate it to Apollo. You'd sprinkle the plates with blood and then wash them. Now, now they can be used in service of the God. They're not ordinary anymore. They've become extraordinary. And Peter says that's happened to you as believers. You have been made fit for the service of the Lord God. And then he went on last week, he told them all these things about God, what God is doing for them. And God has given them a, a new life. God's given them a new inheritance and God's promised that the inheritance will be there. Anybody know any good stories about folks who were expecting an inheritance and didn't get it? I've got a friend here in Atlanta. His wife was from a very wealthy family, four or five siblings, and everyone thought, everyone knew, they knew the will. When dad died, it was going to be divvied out. I, th I think there's five of them. It was going to be divvied out among these five children. And dad was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So basically, every kid is expecting to get a million dollars, a hundred million dollars when dad dies. Turns out, dad's business empire was heavily leveraged. Boy, dad wasn't worth hundreds of millions. He was worth hundreds of thousands. So everybody got like 100,000 at his death, not 100 million. Which for my friend, it was kind of like, well, yeah, that's disappointing, but easy come, easy go, right? I mean, I was 100,000 I didn't have before. We're gonna pay off our house and we're gonna put some away for the kids' college education. And great. You see, some of her siblings had gotten loans out with the inheritance as the collateral. They'd taken a $30 million loan to build their dream house and their dream yacht and buy their dream cars and take their dream vacations. And guess what was gonna happen when their $100 million insurance, uh, $100 million inheritance turned out to be $100,000? It, it ripped the family apart as the siblings tried to claw for every dime and tried to sue everyone they could find to get the money back. Peter says, you will never have to worry about that. You never have to worry that the inheritance isn't going to be there, that someone will steal it, that it will spoil or perish or fade. You never have to worry, Peter says. God guarantees you this inheritance, and he guarantees that you will be there. He guarantees that the inheritance is there, and you will be there. But, he said, part of how he guarantees you will be there is suffering. God will use the suffering that you go through in this life, he will use it to make you fit for his kingdom. He will use it to ensure that you are there with the inheritance when all those things come together. That, that, that suffering is not a test to see if you have faith. It's not something you pass or you fail. Suffering is a refining. It's a burning away of, of the junk in your life. It's increasing your Jesus to junk ratio by getting rid of junk. So there's just more pure Jesus in your life. Peter's told them all of that. But there's not been a command anywhere in there. There's nothing for them to do. This is all just like, this is truth, you need to know this. Now finally, we get a command. Something you need to do. And here's literally what he says to them. He says, therefore, girding the loins of your intellect. 
There's no translation that translates it that way because that doesn't make any sense in our world. Girding the loins of your intellect. Okay, who's seen The Chosen? Right, excellent. So you know that people in this time wear some combination of a toga and a bathrobe, right? Everybody's walking around in this toga, bathrobe thing. What this means is everyone's wearing a skirt. Everyone is wearing a long, full length, almost down to your feet skirt. Now, those of you who wear long, full length, down to your feet skirt, right? What happens when you need to move quickly? What do you do? Grab it, you hike it up, exactly. You can't move quickly. You can't work hard, you can't go do things when you've got fabric down to your feet. You'll trip yourself up. So you've all seen it in the Jane Austen movies, right? When they need to go quickly, what do they do? They pick up the front of it and then they can (laughs) run across and then you put it down again and you walk very ladylike. That's what everyone in this world has to do that because they're all wearing these long flowing robes. But what if you need to like go out and plow your field? What if you need to go out and work, right? You can't be plowing, holding up the front end of your thing and trying to do it. So they gird themselves. You take the front and the back fabric between your legs, put it together in a ball, pull it up and tie it off on your belt. You turn your skirt into shorts. So now, instead of a full-length skirt, you've got fabric up above your knee on one leg and fabric up above the knee on the other, and it's tied off in the front. That's girding. When someone girds themselves, it's because they're going out to do long, hard work. That's when you need to gird your, your loins or your thighs. And Peter says, you need to gird the loins of your intellect. Do you get the image he's making? Because again, it was normal for them. What do you do when you're going to go out in the field and you're going to work hard for a long time? You got to gird your clothing. Peter says, before I tell you what to do, before I give you the command, you got to get ready. You got to get your mind, your intellect ready. Peter's telling them, this is going to be hard. This is going to be work. This is like saying, hey, we're going to go out to the mulch pile, right? If you helped with the mulch pile, you didn't show up dressed like this. You didn't show up in your nice car. You didn't show up with your beautiful tools. You brought a wheelbarrow and work clothes. You got yourself ready. Peter says, you need to get your minds ready because this takes work. What I'm going to tell you will take work. Gird the loins of your intellect and be completely sober. And the word means don't drink. It's just literally, be sober. Because again, what happens to your mind when you drink? Right? You're, you're, you're mellow. Everything's okay. Things that would have bothered you. I have a friend that told me she, she has a very difficult relationship with her parents. And she discovered recently that a shot of tequila before she goes over to her parents' house makes a world of difference. Just so, such a better experience after that. Peter's like, you can't do that. You need to get your mind ready and it needs to be sharp. You can't dull it. You you can't let things slide. What I'm about to say to you, you've got to think about. This is important. And then here's what he tells them. Set your hope 
on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Set your hope. So when I studied French when we were missionaries, our French teachers had these, these words that they would call your fake friends because they sound like English words, but they have different meanings. So the word to demand in French, demander, to demand in French means to ask. It's not a demand. It's the normal everyday word just to ask a question. But you think as an English speaker, oh, that would be a demand, right? No, it's just to ask. It's a, it's a fake friend. It'll fool you, okay? Hope's a fake friend in the Bible. Because in English, hope means to desire something that is uncertain. Oh, I hope it rains. Is it going to rain? Who knows? Oh, I hope Jeff finishes the sermon by 11.30. I could go till two, right? That's a big Bible. There's a lot here. It's uncertain. You don't know. We hope for something in English that is uncertain. It's something we want, we desire. We're eager for it, but we don't know. In the language of the Bible, the word hope means to eagerly desire something, to want something that is certain. In English, it's uncertain. In the language of the Bible, in this case in the New Testament, Koine Greek, it's certain. You see the difference between those two. When you hope in the scriptures, when you read the word hope, it is not a synonym for I wish. It is in English. Oh, I hope it rains. I wish it rains. I really want it to rain. In the language of the New Testament, to hope is to expect. It is something that you know is going to happen. One commentator that I read about this defined hope as the confident, eager expectation of good. I like that. When you read hope in the Bible, think of it as the confident, eager expectation, not just desire, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't, but the expectation that it will happen. Now, let me ask you, where is your confident, eager expectation of good? Because we say it all the time, it'll all work out. There's signs up in Dunwoody, you've probably seen them. I think I've got one on my wall at home in my bathroom. Everything will be okay. If you are a follower of Christ, that is a theologically accurate statement. That is 100% solid if you're a follower of Christ. It will all work out. Everything will be okay. But where do you ground that? Where? When? How? Yes, everything will work out. How will it work out? When will it work out? Where will it work out? Peter says, and again, this is the thesis statement for the rest of his book. How are we going to live as the culture becomes suspicious of us, feels threatened by us, like is really, like, I mean, the Romans were really worried. Like I said, they were scared. The Christians would bring down the wrath of the gods on them. How do we live as believers when what's going on around us turns against us? And the first thing you got to do is you got to get your hope. Your confident expectation of good. Your, your, your eager 
expectation that everything is going to work out, you've got to anchor it in the right place. Which Peter says is at the return of Christ. It is not here and now. Brothers and sisters, that's not a promise. The Bible does not promise that everything will work out here and now. The Bible promises that everything will work out when Jesus returns. Which is why, as you notice, since the sky has not split open, everything has not worked out. Why are things still so messed up? Because Jesus hasn't come back yet. The promise in Scripture is that at the return of Christ, everything will be set right. Your confident, eager expectation of good must be rooted in the return of Jesus, not anything in the here and the now. Now, please don't mishear me. I am not saying God never acts in the here and now. He does. He does all the time. Scripture says the whole world, the whole earth, the planet is full of his loving kindness. You get sick and we pray for you. And oftentimes God heals you. But not always. Because that's not a promise. And there are people in this church we have prayed for, we have agonized for, we have lay, lay prostrate sobbing on the carpet and begged God to heal them. And God has said yes. And we've done exactly the same thing and God has said no. There is no promise that God will work everything out now. The promise is he will work it all out at the return of Christ. But churches are littered with people, and you probably know them, who became angry and disillusioned and bitter because their confident, eager expectation of good was rooted in something here. It was rooted in something now. Because we all know, I mean, this is like one of those aphisms you teach your kids, right? It's your expectations that make you disappointed, not reality. If you expect things to be hard, then okay, it's hard and you get it. If you expect it to be easy and it's the same amount of hard, it's terrible, terrible, it's awful. So many of you know my wife is in Michigan taking care of her mother. She's been gone a little over two weeks, right? That's a bummer for everybody, right? Let me just say dad does not do mom nearly as well as mom does mom, okay? Everybody's happier in the family when dad does dad and mom does mom. But for right now, dad is dad and mom. But we knew when this happened, we knew when she got on the plane to fly up to take care of her mom, we knew we were talking about two, three, four weeks. This wasn't going to be quick. So okay, so here we are, partial way into the third week, and we're all like, yep, this is a bummer, don't like this, be glad when this is over, but yep, I got it. But imagine if we thought she was going to get on the plane Saturday morning and be back Monday. I'll just get mom settled in the hospital, and then I'll come back. Monday night, oh, no, I can't come, I've got to stay here. Maybe Wednesday. Wednesday night, no, I can't come, maybe Friday. Friday night, no, I can't come. We all know how much worse that is. It's the same situation. She's not here, we are. It's the exact same situation. But if you expect that the good will happen now, and it doesn't, it gets pushed off, and it gets pushed off, and it gets pushed off, that's awful. That is so hard to endure. This is Peter's thesis statement for suffering. And remember how he starts it. Brothers and sisters, this is hard. You've got to steal your mind for this. You can't have anything distracting you or dulling your senses. This 
is difficult work. I get it. There's weeks I don't remember on Wednesday what I preached on Sunday, okay? There's, we, there's sermons that are just like, you should hear this, you should remember this, this is good, it goes in, it's helpful, right? This is not one of those things you can forget tomorrow. This is hard work because everything in our world, and I think everything in our own hearts, pushes us to have our hope, our confident expectation of good. This is going to work out here, now. If only, if only I say this prayer, if only this person is in charge, if only I'm in this relationship, if only I get this job, the church is littered with people whose confident expectation of good was rooted in an if only, and God didn't do it. God didn't save that person didn't spare their life. God didn't give them that relationship. God didn't give them that job. God didn't give them that leader or that program or whatever it is that they had set their expectation of good on. And so they decided you're not worth it. Why should I, why should I worship a God who doesn't meet my expectations for good? Who doesn't work on my timetable to my desires and they bail. And folks... Again, Peter's talking to people. The culture is turning against them. The culture that used to ignore them now is starting to turn against them. That's happening in our world as the faith and our Western culture divide. If I told you 10 years ago, 2013, that Christian pastors in America, there there were pastors who would be arrested for holding church services in their buildings on Sunday mornings, would you have believed me? Because I'd have laughed at you if you said that. And then COVID Please understand, I'm not making a political statement. I'm not saying whether they should or should not have had the services. I'm not saying whether the authorities should or should not have arrested them. I'm saying who would have imagined 10 years ago that anything would have happened where a guy on a Sunday morning at 11 o'clock in his building holding a church service, the police would show up and arrest him. Our culture and the faith, we're dividing. We're splitting on what we say is important. And that's going to continue because... Because it continued here. This is the first time, the early 60s AD, Emperor Nero. It's the first time the Roman government turned against Christians. But it happens over and over and over again. It happens over and over again in history. This is not new or unusual. And it will get worse. Paul tells the Corinthians that as a believer, you are the aroma of life or the aroma of death to all the people around you. I want you to think about the aroma of life. Think about something you love. You know, the the spring or flowers, or I I can't imagine it's pollen, but maybe for some of you the pine trees do it. Something, the rain, right? And after a spring day, something where it's just, you go outside, it's like, oh, that's so wonderful. Anybody ever smelled a dead body after it's been lying in a field for a couple days? Don't, right? Paul says, you You followers of Christ, to the people who don't follow Christ, some of them, you're going to be like, oh, wow. And some of them, it's going to be like, oh, my God, why do I, gosh. That hasn't really happened much in our world. Because I think we've smelled just like everybody else. 
Like, it just wasn't that. We, Christians haven't been that different. Oh, we're going to start to smell different. Again, I've told you that as, as culture pushes against the faith, we're people. We act just like everyone else. We either want to fight or we want to flee. Fight or flight. It's the way we deal with stress. And you see Christians fighting. You see Christians getting up in arms. You see Christians saying, I'm going to hurt you if you don't do what I want. You see Christians fighting. And you see Christians fleeing. You see whole denominations saying, well, okay, if the culture says it's okay, it must be fine. We don't want to make any waves. <laughs> a friend of mine I was saying the other day, you know, it, it, all of the, the, there's, there's entire swaths of Christianity that seem, the bottom line seemed to be, please push like on our video. And the scriptures say, don't do either of those. The scriptures, almost, there's almost nothing the scriptures tells us to fight and nothing the scripture tells us to flee. Again, not zero, there are a couple things. But almost everywhere what the scriptures tell us to do when faced with conflict is to stand firm. Stand firm on the word of God. Don't attack and don't retreat. Stand. And Peter is telling these guys, what's this going to look like for you? What do you need to do to be able to stand firm? To live, he'll say this to them later, live such good lives among the non-Christians that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Not now. It's not just you live such a great life that they say, they, they, oh, wow, yes, that's it. When Jesus returns, that's where our hope must be set. As more and more we look different from the world around us, and some people react positively to that because they're impressed, and other people hate it. It is the aroma, it's the smell of death and decay to them. They don't want to be around it. As that happens, more and more, we must have our hope in the right place. It is not that we will do something, we will figure something out, we will come up with something, and then it'll all be good. If only this happens, then it will all be good. Please, absolutely, work and pray for all the if-onlys. Work and pray for all the good you can possibly do in this world, but you can't set your hope there. You can't have your expectation that, oh, when this happens, I'm gonna work really hard to get this program going, and when this program gets going, then everything will be good. It won't. Some things will be good. Everything will not be good. Again, gird the loins of your mind. Think. Think about what this would mean. Remember geometry? Lines, line segments, all that kind of stuff, right? Remember a line segment? It's got a dot and a line and a dot. And one dot is the starting point, and then you've got the line, and the next dot is the end point. That's it. That's all there is in a line segment, just the points between those two dots. And our whole world says that's your life. There's this timeline that started back who knows when and goes forward who knows when, but all of your life is contained between those two dots. And that's the only shot you get. That's it. If it doesn't happen on that line between those two dots, you're done. It will never happen. You're out. And the Bible says your life is a ray. Remember rays? 
ray has a dot and a line, and then at some point it's got an arrow at the end of the line because it never ends. A ray has a starting point, but there is no ending point. It goes on forever. That's what scripture says your life is like. You have a starting date. <laughs> you were born. And then you will go on forever. Yes, there's a point in time when either you will die. There's a point in time when you will die. There's a point in time when Jesus will return. You may die before that. or He may return before that. We don't know. But those are no different than your 12th birthday. Or the date you bought your first car. They're just dates on a line. There's a date where you die. But the line keeps going because your life keeps going. There, there's a point where Jesus returns and sets all things right. And your line keeps going. 40 trillion years from now, if you are a follower of Christ, we will still know each other. We will still be headed out into eternity. Think about how that should change your thinking. If your life is not just what happens between these two points, if you don't get it done between those two points, it will never happen. There's a point where you die, yep, if you don't get it done before then, you'll have to do it sometime in the next 40 trillion bazillion years because you're just going to keep going. If your job is bad, you know, great, find another job if you can. And if you can't, if your life consists of this little part of a line between these two points and you were born and here you got the job and now you're just looking at that terrible job all the way to that point and then it's done, you're, that's it. Wow, that is crushing. That is crushing despair that that's all your life will ever amount to. But if your life starts here and goes on forever, and there's this little section right here. Yeah, it wasn't that great a job. It wasn't everything I hoped for. Didn't work out the way I thought it was. But there's a point when Jesus returns. When you become everything you're supposed to be. When you're Jesus to junk ratio, right? It, Jesus is 100% and junk is zero. When you are exactly the person you are supposed to be. And there is a job for you in eternity. Because Adam had work before the fall. Work isn't part of the bad thing in the world. It's become corrupted. There's jobs for you to do in eternity that you were made for. You are the person God made to do that. There is incredibly perfect, satisfying work. Okay, you're right. It's not in this little gap here where you have a job you don't like. It's from here on for trillions and trillions of years. If you don't feel very excited about your marriage, I'm sorry, that's hard. Because you can change your job anytime you want in scripture. Change your spouse, there's, only a, there's a really narrow range of options for that if you're gonna follow God. But again, there's a point when Jesus returns. There's no marriage in heaven, scripture says, because we are married to the lamb. If your marriage is not all you want it to be now, do all you can <laughs> to fix that. Do all you possibly can. 
But that doesn't mean everything can be fixed. And yep, there may be this slice on that ray that goes on forever. There is a slice where you were married to someone and it didn't work out the way you wanted. And it wasn't everything you hoped and dreamt for. But there is a point when Jesus returns and you are married to Christ. You have the perfect spouse. Marriage here in our world, it's this little taste, Scripture says, of what it's going to be like after the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's this, supposed to be this little taste of how good it's going to be when God and mankind are reunited together. If you're sick and God won't heal you, again, I am sorry. Tell us, we will pray for you. But for whatever God says, even if it's to the end of your earthly life, however long that is, then you're healed forever. There is a moment when you are healed forever and you go on being healed forever, forever. It never changes I'm in, I'm in a master's program right now, master's of divinity. There are eight-week classes, just one right after another. Eight weeks, get a week off. Eight weeks, get a week off. Boom, boom, boom. Some of the classes I love, they're great. I so enjoy them. Eh, some of them, not so much. You know, some of them, not that excited about. It's eight weeks. You can do anything for eight weeks. Right? I can put up with this class for eight weeks. Peter says, that's the way we're supposed to be thinking about our lives. Yep. This world is full of suffering. That's not gonna change. That's not gonna change till Jesus comes back. Don't fool yourself and do not believe anyone on the TV who tells you you can change that if only. If only you pray this, if only you join this, if only you do this, if only you send money to this ministry, if only you can have your confident expectation of good in the here and now, you can't. That is not on offer. That is not a promise. The promise is it will happen at the return of Christ. And praise God, the return of Christ is not an if. It's a when. When Jesus returns, all of this is like a dream. And we all go on forever. Perfectly married, perfectly happy, perfectly healthy, perfect forever. And Peter says, here, now, today, you got to set your mind on this. This is hard. It takes work. You can't just listen to the sermon, go off, say, wow, that's encouraging. You got to get up tomorrow and do it again, because everything in you is trying to tell you to set your hope now, here, in this. You've got to consciously decide over and over and over again, no, that is not what God has promised. God has promised at the return of Christ. So, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray this for us, that, that God will do this in us, that, that he will remind us. And again, folks, gird the loins of your mind, being perfectly sober. This will not happen easily. It will not happen overnight. I don't know about you, but I suspect for me, this is like daily for the rest of my life. I've got to remind myself over and over and over again, what the Lord has promised me is good at the return of Christ. Now, he is gracious, and there is tons of good before then, but this is what he's promised. This is where I've set my hope. This is where I have a complete assurance, a confident expectation that everything will be okay because Jesus will return and make it so. So pray with me.
Uh, Lord, thank you. I agree with Peter. This is hard. <laughs> this, this is hard to get our minds around. This is hard to remember and to keep remembering. This is hard to wake up every day and to know that, yeah, today might be great. Today might be bad. T- today might be a wonderful day. Oh, today might be a hard day. Today might be a day of joy and today might be a day of suffering and all those things come through your hands and you have good plans in all of this and one day, one day it will all be set right. But you haven't returned so far today. So that's not today. Today is not the day. It is all set right. But Jesus, help us. Help us to do what Peter says. Help us to have our confidence securely in your return. It's nothing we do. There's nothing that we have to do for that. You will return on the appointed day. Nothing can stop that. Oh, Jesus, help us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be persistent. Help us to be courageous to do this day after day after day, to set our hope in your return, to know that is when all things will be set right. That is when it will all be good. You know, Lord, we so desperately want it all to be good now. We so desperately don't want to suffer. We so desperately want the people we love to be healed. We so desperately want our marriages to be restored. All of the things that this broken world has broken. Jesus, help us, be gracious to us, remind us. Thank you for all the ways you are kind to us and you do undo what is broken, even though you haven't returned yet. But help us to be steadfast. Help us to do exactly what Peter says, to think this through, to apply our minds, to to remind ourselves over and over and over again that our hope is set on your return. We expect good because we know one day you will return. Lord, as we take communion, as we remember what you have done for us, work this into our hearts and our minds that we know you have come. We know you have died. We know you have risen. All that has happened in the past. Remind us that we know you will return. Just, it's like the inheritance. It hasn't happened yet in time, but it has happened. You have ordained it. Nothing can stop it. Help us, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.